Hello, this is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about connections, international business, supply chains and globalization and their effects on our life, our work and our travel over recent times. Today on the show, we'll be talking to Darren Harris, a consultant, trainer and university lecturer based in Dublin. Darren has two interesting and complementary roles uh, currently. Uh, so one is he is a research and development expert for the speciality food and technology uh, sector, helping those with R&D tax grants and uh, grant reports in his private consultancy role. And then he is also a lecturer in bakery and pastry arts at the School of Culinary Art and Food Technology at TU Dublin. So welcome, Darren, and thank you very much for being here with us today. Thanks, Patrick. Um, hello to your listeners and thanks for your time. It's a pleasure to share share some time with you here today. You're very welcome. So uh, maybe as an overview, Darren, could you give us uh, an idea of, of your career to, to date and how from that kind of culinary and gastronomic background you ended up in this position of being an R&D consultant to, uh, to businesses here in Ireland? Yeah, thank you. So I suppose um, when you hear my career path, you might be tempted to go just, you know, as a chef or a baker. Um, I've had a, quite a circular career path, Patrick. I was a lot more scientific and analytical than your average baker and chef out there. And no disrespect to them, you know, I have an absolute passion for food, but I was also, I always wanted to do a deep dive. I wanted to understand operationally how business worked. And um, I suppose that led me into other disciplines beyond uh, the bakeries and the small hours of the morning or the kitchens at the small evenings and in in, in, small times in the evening. So basically, I found myself in kind of a halfway house between those two different disciplines and an opportunity came up to a master's in culinary innovation and product development. And at that point, then I um, realized that not only did I have a stronger insight into science, I was fundamentally driven by understanding how things work. And that then brought me into large scale food manufacturing expertise. So, you know, a lot I'm a lot stronger on the operational side and, um, you know, speaking to complex teams, dealing with procurement teams. And also, I suppose that what that also did was it brought me on the journey where I realized that there's actually a technical skills gap around an analysis and writing and technical report writing for the food industry. So, that's a kind of a whistle-stop tour of part one. Part so two what, was my culinary education for TU Dublin. Okay, so what does what does your current work entail then on, on both sides? So as an R&D consultant on the one hand and, on a, uh, and as a university lecturer on the other, and how do the two complement each other if they do? Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose it, the, the, I'll start with the university side, I suppose. So university start, side is that you're dealing with, you know, the new recruits, so we say, people who have a passion in the area, you know, around bakery, culinary arts, designing new products, making things taste good, etc. But you're bringing those learners on that journey, Patrick, you know, you're trying to upskill people with theoretical and practical skills in a university environment. It's a very safe environment. I mean, use that term, right? You know, we challenge the students. But fundamentally, you know, you're not going to lose your job if something goes wrong, right? The whole idea is to learn and, you know, and, and to be, you know, and be mentored on that journey, right? Okay. But where that overlaps with industry is that if you flip that out in industry, right, you're only as good as your last performance review. You know, there's often a concern about 
wanting to show that you made an error or you learned from something, right? So, you know, that's kind of fundamental R&D, right? Now, I'm not espousing that we deliberately go out of our way to make errors, but if we can train people to make better errors and analyze them quicker, respond quicker, that actually allows us to improve our processes, our products, and our formulations and our profitability. And what that in turn does then, if that's captured right, allows people to draw down grant funding and R&D tax credits. So they are they are linked, they're, but they're on a spectrum, you know, of experience and skills. And in between that, you've got life skills on the way as well. But again, fundamentally, when you're in industry, we can't simulate in education, we cannot simulate a workplace environment no more than industry can simulate an educational environment. They're complementary, but they're separate disciplines. And where I saw the gap was coming in, being able to speak to the people who are at the cold face, giving them the key information, the linguistic skills, the data, and how to get these reports done quicker, which then helps them to do their jobs better as well. But it's critical to get them out of that environment and kind of hold them into a learning space for a short period of time with the house. And so the people you're you're training in the, in the in the courses in the university are these people who are going to end up working in restaurants or hotels or more in the food industry in food manufacturing or processing industries yeah great question so you've always got people who are passionate who want to set up their you know their restaurants or their bakeries or their bakery cafes like that cohort is always going to be there you are seeing quite strong demand from food manufacturers who are looking for people who understand what good looks like at a recipe concept stage and you know and they will mentor those types of students on that journey so you've got that kind of split the creative types the chefy artistic types and you've got the sign types as well but what you often find is is that there's a there's a schism because students who are working sorry students who are learning in the university don't necessarily always see themselves as manufacturing material. You know, they don't always want to work there. I, you know, there's nearly a sense that it's not sexy enough or it's not glamorous enough. I can use that kind of terminology. And that's an optics issue that needs to be addressed. It's quite common in the UK as well, that, you know, we're having difficulties um, bringing in new millennials and new recruits into the business. But that's also down to historical factors about maybe lack of investment, a lot of money being tied up you know, and maybe not enough forward planning as well, you know, and that, that's a communication gap as well that, you know, the industry, a, a lot of industries actually manufacturing have to overcome. Yeah, do, do, do maybe the students think that, you know, if I wind up working in industry, maybe I'm not a talented chef or cook or, or whatnot, do they think maybe it's lower, lower skills? Do you know what I think part of it is? Because I do actually get my students on site visits quite a bit, right? And when they see the site, they're always incredibly impressed by the technology. But it's really hard to visualize a large-scale state-of-the-art production plant, you know, you know, in your mind's eye. And you're actually walking through and it's real. Like a kitchen, we've all seen a kitchen with a chef having a tantrum or we've all seen that, you know, it's been romanticized in the media. You don't have that, you know. Maybe we need like a kind of a, you know, a, a Gordon Ramsay type expo, say, for manufacturing, you know, and people can kind of come in and fix your manufacturing problems and glamorize the industry a little bit. But that's, that is a big issue. You know, it's a percentage of perception optics issue. But when students realize that there are graduate programs out there, that starts to get their interest a bit, you know. So it's just that engagement piece, I think, is a bit of an issue, Patrick. And in your consultancy work, how would you say your clients are better off after having worked with you? 
yeah great question so uh that's that's you know like everybody's stressed right so you know why, why should i go and you know to engage yourself or risk it right first of all you, you need to get out of your own skin when you're actually looking at a project i often say to clients change your facts change your tax you know it's actually about your information um you know i'll, I'll give you a quick case study actually is probably a, a good way to do this if that's all right we had a client that was uh you know uh, I'm 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 not going to name the client, but I'm going to give you a, a close enough to the actual figures here, right? So the they they were able to provide a quote to a customer for producing approximately 100 units per hour, right? Okay, high end units per hour, okay, to a now this is like a complex complex product, okay, and they were producing 100 units per hour in a large scale manufacturing environment. So when I talk about units, I'm talking about palletization as opposed to individual products here, right? So producing 100 units per hour, but they were actually able to run their manufacturing line 50% faster than the bomb, okay? So when they were talking to the talking to their client around the bill of materials and gave the quote over, the manufacturing figured out a way to run the line 50% faster, right? Which meant in about five and a half hours, you would have produced what you normally might've been able to make in an eight hour shift. So far, so good, Are you with me, okay? Yeah. Now, what this meant was, was that because they're running the line faster, problems occurred right so they had downtime during that eight hour shift right but when the manager came in the following morning they were still able to hit that 100 units per hour over eight hours as a general target right so they had two and a half hours of downtime but it could have been making products but it wasn't picked up on because they were still hitting that 100k 100 products per hour over eight hours right so what actually that meant was from a procurement point of view, from a packaging raw materials point of view, the guys in the inventory in the stores couldn't keep up because one day the product production would run like a dream and the next day it'd be a disaster and they'd be using a lot more consumables on the products, right? So this didn't become visible to the manufacturer until I actually did a deep dive through the processes and went, hang on a second here, there's a serious discrepancy in what you're actually using. Nobody wanted to admit there was a problem because everybody's KPIs were were associated with delivery of 800 units over a shift or minimizing waste, right? Okay, and this is all hidden, right? Under the umbrella of R&D, right? So that's just a really quick analysis in relation to kind of like the kind of extra set of eyes that I can bring. Now, more importantly, if you're capturing the information right, you can draw down funding. So my services pay for themselves. I often say to clients, clients, if you use my services, they're for free. But if you don't use me, there's a cost because you won't have resources to actually do technical writing in one of these businesses because mm -hmm. there's a fear and a concern about what good R&D writing looks like. And people, the human nature will be, look, I'm too constrained. I don't think we, we, we I don't think we actually qualify for this. I don't want to have a technical audit from revenue. It's an extra headache. And fundamentally, the R&D or the NPD department the better they are, the harder they're working, okay? And so the more proficient they are, the more likely they are to actually say, we don't actually qualify for R&D. And that's a constriction and that's a that's a systemic issue that I see in the food industry. So, so it sounds like from what you're saying that the value is not just in the deliverable, which is some sort of a well-written application, but it's actually in the, the know-how that you're you're bringing to bear that has a much higher value than the deliverable. At the end of the day, the deliverable is just a piece of paper. Um, would that be would that be fair to say? Uh, the, the the deliverable is a monetary gain, right? You know, so there's a monetary gain there. There's actually there's actually it does a recruitment benefit as well, right? Because if you're actually training people to do better R and D, 
you're going to have production line operators. You're going to have people who are shadowing the R and D lead, and you're going to be actually training them on the on the job as well and upskilling them. So, but by, by as a consequence of drawing down grants and R and D tax credits, you're actually training your workforce to better react as well and respond to issues that they can see in the line on the production line, and also be more aware of opportunities in the marketplace. So you quite often find that staff are a bit more enthused about their work as well. They're quite a bit more engaged. They kind of say, "Oh, I saw this." When I was away on holiday and I heard this is a thing, is this a trend, right? So you kind of get this like virtuous circle of ideas coming back into the business rather than people just going in, doing their eight or the 12 hours in manufacturing and going home, you know? And the other thing about it is as well is that you quite often find that there's a better um, tenacity with the staff as well. When they actually have problems, they, they kind of know how to resolve them themselves without always having to reach into the senior management team as well, you know, who are already constrained themselves. So, you know, there's, there's a big play here. It's not just a financial piece. It's actually upskilling the workforce and actually retaining talent in the business as well. That's quite often not picked up on until it actually happens. And you get kind of quite positive feedback from people once we start implementing these processes. Yeah, yeah. Ups upskilling and staff retention are huge issues uh, these days. We know with the way the, uh, the labor market is, and um, challenges that companies are facing and you know it's probably even in the in the longer run probably more important than the than the grants and so on but what 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 is r d in in general terms and what constitutes r d from the point of view of tax breaks and grants in in the irish system and who provides those um, grants and tax breaks Okay, yeah, great question. So there's, there's, it, there's a really, really good and strong, I'm just using very vanilla language here just to re, to engage with the people as many as possible, um, to engage with as many people as possible here. There's a very strong ecosystem of grants and R&D tax credits available in this country, be it through the IDA or Enterprise Ireland, okay, or your local enterprise office even as well. Now, to be mindful about this, the Irish Revenue also have R&D tax credits. So you have grants and you have R&D tax credits. The definition of what R&D actually comes from is from an OECD. Now, I'm not going to bore you, but it's essentially the resolution of a scientific or technological uncertainty. So what does that mean, right? First of all, you need to have a competent professional, somebody who knows how to do the job, right, with some kind of qualification and or experience who's been working there. So it could be like a line manager or a department manager, right? They have to be located in the country or at least be working on site quite a bit. So what does a scientific or technological uncertainty mean? And you use an example here for the food industry, it's data, it's specifications around the product, it's your settings on the machinery, it's your photographic records, it's your email summary reports on how a production shift went, how you fix things, you know, okay? What drives R&D? This is probably a bigger and more relevant question for your listeners here. It's going to be procurement. It's going to be cost-saving analysis. It's going to be contingency supply. It's going to be reformulation. It's going to be issues such as government legislation coming in the pipe going, can you reduce the sugar in this? Can you change the sodium in this? Or can you make this more sustainable? Can you make this in a manner that might have a different Heat had a heating element, therefore, that could affect, you know, the carbon outputs associated with this. So there's a big play here. It's not the product per se. It's the process, the raw materials and the thinking around the product. So like there's a or big even the, Venn diagram. Chain, even the supply chain and the logistics, maybe. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a big Venn diagram about this. And I suppose I really appreciate the opportunity to share this because 
maybe with supply chain, you guys are focused on outside and macro. Just there's people who know how to get things done on R&D. They probably know what's coming up from a trends or constriction perspective or skills perspective because they're on the front lines of delivering, right? You know, they're at the bottom end of the food chain in a sense, but they also are talking to other movers and shakers in product development, and they can probably feed up information that might be very valuable to procurement, supply chain, and logistics about what's going to happen in the next 12 to 18 months. So, you know, it's good to talk, right? You know, it's that kind of BT slogan, but it's really important to get as much data as you can. And sometimes that qualitative data can provide a lot of insights as regards what's applicable from an R&D grant perspective and also what potentially can go in from a tax perspective as well. So overall, you could probably write off between 60 and 80% of your costs associated with the carrying on of R&D. Raw materials, energy, staff, lab analysis, technical reports, consultants, you know, you could be looking at uh, mass balance weights, you know, like if you think you're losing some weights there as well. Once it's conducted in a rigorous ma manner and you set out your project task properly, then you could be looking at R&D. So it's a fantastic opportunity for companies on the margin. I, I assume as well, a lot of these companies and if Enterprise Ireland are involved, it's because they want these companies to be exporting. So what, you know, what challenges do Irish SME food, uh, SME, SMEs in the food sector face and actually doing credible R&D that's going to be successful here and, and abroad? Okay, so we, we, we've got an issue, right? We, you know, Ireland's known globally for its food credentials. So, you know, we are the Green Island, we're the Food Island, okay? We're known for the, for the quality of our raw produce. Brexit, you know, I hate to bring up the B word, but Brexit's been a massive issue, especially around fresh produce, making sure it gets to where you want it to get to in a certain amount of time. There's additional customs checks in there now as well, so that's one problem. From a processed food perspective that has a sh extended shelf life, be it MAP, be it frozen, you know, be it canned, whatever it is, we have a constriction in Ireland, okay, in that we don't have enough, unless you want to go on the private label or you want to go on the auspices of somebody else, we don't really have enough manufacturing centers for the food industry bearing the, the output that we do in this country, you know. So, the, you know, the, the, the food food and beverage industry is about 30 billion a year annually. Mm -hmm. Our exports gone from memory, I think it's about 8 billion. So it's not an insubstantial chunk of change. And what we have is now we have a lot of incubator spaces, and, but we don't have enough of that kind of medium size produce producers where you're just about to start scaling up properly and going over to Europe and rolling stuff out. Historically, we were looking at the UK, but now we have a problem, right? Okay, we can't do that anymore because, that you know, like Europe are kind of walloping them now with legislation as well. So it's kind of payback on that. We're looking a little bit at France, but, you know, that's, that's a whole other opportunity there. And then again, if you do R&D in this country, you can claim back your R&D tax credits in a different country, but the records need to be up to scratch. And maybe there's some differences in how the French might take some records for versus what you're doing from Ireland. And I suppose that's where I've kind of seen the gap here as well. You know, it's about helping companies know what needs to be captured so they can absolutely catch their bona fides R&D expenditure. And so this is meant to assist Irish companies involved in risky activities. So that's new, the unknown, or trying something you haven't tried before. Your competitors might be doing it. It could be a Me Too product, but you just might not have the information on how to do it. So that's your inherent risk. 
in, in involved in the process. So it's, it's once you start doing a deep dive in this, it really starts jumping out. If you haven't gone straight to production, then there's a reason for that. Now, Ireland on the aggregate figures is a is a, an export powerhouse, but when you when you break that down, um, vast majority of our exports are driven by a relatively small number of multinational corporations and some large Irish companies. You know the likes of in the food sector, say, or New and Kerry and Glambia and these people. But there's lots and lots of small and medium sized Irish companies, and I think they were perhaps complacent. That you know, when you talked about export, it was always the UK, similar culture, similar taste, and all that kind of thing. And now, I think we 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 we've been poor at this. You know, diversifying into countries like Spain and Italy and France and Germany and and so on, because there's a different type of understanding, different tastes, different nuances, different packaging, and so on. So has, has that become a particular challenge since since Brexit? It, it would, right? Because there's a constriction. There's only so much local expertise you have, and then suddenly the whole market is, has, has changed, you know? Yeah. I suppose, you know, in the companies that you've mentioned, the larger, you know, the, the the big boys and girls, they would have those resources available to them, you know, and it wouldn't be their first rodeo, you know? But, like, there's a good ecosystem of supports here, you know, via Borbia, and also, you know, I suppose there are... Some people I know have to operate in a few different jurisdictions. I suppose where we, sorry, when I say we, the collect where 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 the food industry has been trying to target quite a bit is actually the Middle East, high value products, you know, and so you know like there's a bit of a move for Irish cheese, would you believe, and dairy over there, you know, because it's very much a premium product. So again, yeah, there's there's market sensibilities and nuances, you know, over there. And you know, I'm I'm just gonna be matter of fact, you know, you're not gonna put up and, and this is meant to be, you know, all encompassing, but there's sensitivities and cultural sensitivities around like, you know, family or you know, like you know, activism and stuff like that. So, you know, like you're quite often your advertising and your your branding has to be cognizant not only of operating in the EU. Right, where maybe a Pride logo, for example, is very well uh, accepted, but also you might need to be thinking about how that might be taken in in Middle East as well. You know, mm-hmm. so I've kind of heard some stuff about blowback as well. You know, about maybe companies espousing too much for one persona in EU and then a different persona over there. So it just has to be congruent with what you're doing and part of your bigger long term strategy. And again, it's just meant to be sort of a friendly observation as opposed to you know any kind of veiled criticism. It's not that at all. I want Irish companies to succeed, but if you're going to play in the global stage, you need to be thinking of the ramifications about cultural sensitivities and what works, you know, because people do travel around a bit as well. Yeah. So um, I might just change tack uh, slightly away from the the, the business um, per se, and maybe just um, explore a few things with with you as 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 Darren, as Darren Harris. So what would you say? Um, is the most important life lesson that you've learned that stood to you throughout your career? Oh, there's been loads. There's been loads. I suppose just believe in yourself and just keep on going, right? Because, you know, at one stage I was a chef and I was just like, okay, what am I doing this for? I like it, but I need change. And I wanted to get into radio broadcasting and I fancied that. And, you know, but if you just keep on whittling away and stuff, you know, you'll get there, you know? And it's it's to just enjoy the ride. Um, I've I I I've done a lot of kind of personal development, and I got mentored by a guy called Bob Proctor. You may or you may not have heard of him. He's quite big in the states, 
Proctor Gallagher Institute. So that was all just about keeping your thoughts focused, being aligned and being congruent in what you want to do, you know, and, 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 and trying to, you know, think about what an elegant life is, you know, and, and to really try and get that. And it's all about consequences, right? You know, we can get bombarded with stuff every day. So for me, it's, it's, it's just to follow through, know you can do it. If you believe you can, you're already halfway there. And I suppose if anybody is listening, that's something I do actually try and take to my students as well, you know, just to try and see themselves in a, in a, in a different light and, and keep on tipping away. Cause there, there's so much negativity out there, Patrick. It's, it's, it's scary, you know? Yeah, what, what you said reminds me a little bit. I think a mentor of mine said something like this to me. You've probably heard it out there as well, that like uh, 50% of success is actually turning up. So as you say, you have to keep, um, you know, keep chipping away at what you're what you're doing. Um, and, you know, the opportunities will will come for you. Um, another little question. So last uh, two or three years, so we've been through this whole COVID uh, experience. So how has that changed or refined or reinforced any of your own personal views or beliefs about work about life and about business um <laughs> well i i properly got going actually and launched my food business during the start of covid right so you know i was i was just getting on with it so again i, I suppose you, you have this idea of kind of creative destruction you know that something's going to break and a new opportunity bubbles up you know so for, for me it's just stay stay on be authentic stay on target stay on message you know try not to become subject to the winds of change too much you know because you know like follow follow a tr the trend is your the trend is your friend but not a fad you know and i think you know there's always going to be statistics you know telling you that this is going to be the next big thing but if you kind of look at the data the more information you have the better and i, I suppose you're asking me about COVID and everything else. So there was a lot of stuff we didn't know at the time, but the fundamentals were the food industry was the fourth emergency service, right? That's one thing we learned. If you told me my status as a food employee was going to be equivalent to like an ambassador, you know, you're getting waved through guard at checkpoints and all this stuff. I would have laughed at you a few years ago, but it was true, right? Everybody realized how important the food industry was. It's an evergreen industry. We ain't going to go out of business. We need to bump up production by 50%. If people are in the next 30 to 50 years, like that's a scary stat, right? And, you know, we need to focus on this, right? Because and I'm not selling fair here, but if this isn't properly managed, you know, there could be food shortages, right? So we need to get clever. We need to get motivated and we need to invest, right? And I suppose that's the other thing about the R&D thing. Like this is, there's a, there's a pro bono for here, you know, like apart from, yeah, having fun, to have following my passions, saving companies some money. It's actually a bit of a mission, right? So, you know, we, we know how important food is. We know how it brings people together, you know, and we know how authentic it is. You can't force somebody to eat something they don't want to eat. So, you know, there's a certain honesty about it. You know, if you don't like it, you go off and buy something else. I'm not forcing it on you. So um, I, I just think that it's made people appreciate what they have a lot more over the last few years. And that's probably only a good thing, you know. We we sped up and we slowed down. It's it's kind of a weird thing over the last few years, you know. It's, it's, so you it's you you've been there. You've been successful, and I'm sure you'll you'll continue to be successful. But as 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 you know, um, success is not a straight line. So everybody faces setbacks in their career and or in their life. So how do you approach setbacks? So what what do you what do you do? What do you think? What do you say to yourself? to get yourself back on track when you've had the setback? 
it's 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 only temporary, you know, it's a blip, you know, it's it's a, this too will pass, you know, it's the only thing like that really works because you can kind of get it to the doldrums and start being hard on yourself. Oh, I should have seen this, should have would have could have, you know, it's just a case, it's just a case of dust yourself off, look at it, see if you can get the learning off. I know this sounds a bit trite, but it's just so true, you know, nobody's gonna tap you on the shoulder and say it's gonna be okay, you know, maybe your wife, your partner, or whoever it is, but like you just you, you just got to try and take a learning out of it and do read the books on I've been reading books on CEOs and you know you know what the attributes of CEOs and there's there's so much content out there to help focus your thinking on stuff you know but you need to be plugging into this all the time you know for yourself you know and and, and don't let other people tell you what to think you know for so for me I suppose critically I it's just if I if I have a knock I'm going to pick up something on somebody who was successful, you know, I'm going to read that. You can only think one thing at a time, right? You know, you can't think left and right at the same time. You can't think up or down. So if I hit a wall, I'm going to read something positive and it's going to get me off. And so that's the, yeah. that's the most simple and eloquent answer. And sorry about the roundabout style, but it's truth that it helps me. Well, th many thanks, um, Darren, for being here with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Thanks again. So until next time, keep well and stay safe.